0: asked why some people are um, skillful and wise, making good decisions and suffer less, and why others have a more difficult time, make decisions that aren't so wise and suffer more. He explained that those who ask a lot of questions and practice to find the answers grow in wisdom. And it isn't primarily the asking of questions of teachers or books, but it's asking questions of ourself. What is this? Is the mind aware? That leads to a deep, pervasive, a comprehensive understanding of what is going on here. Mindfulness, this remembering to recognize the present moment's experience is a way of investigating uh, this mind-body experience called life or me. And as I've acknowledged, our own bodies and our own minds are the field of exploration. And T.S. Eliot uh, confirmed the the practice that we're undertaking when he says in Little Gidding from the Four Quartets we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In one sense we could say we're not going anywhere. All we're doing with all of our awareness practice is just trying to be here now. The old Ramdas, you know, conjunctions—just <laughs> yeah. try to be here now. And the the confirmation of T.S. Eliot's understanding is that we we look we we go around again and again, we spiral into ourselves, we come out of ourselves, we we look again and again at very familiar, you might even say, the same stuff, and yet we understand it differently. And I've seen that that seems to be the way that wisdom unfolds. It's not so much that we come upon something, wow, like we've never seen it before, it's that we see the same things but through different eyes, through the eyes of a more comprehensive understanding. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about this uh, exploration and what it is we find when we look right here over and over again. Carl Sagan, the patron saint of curiosity, (laughs) and a great Dharma teacher also exclaimed avoidable human misery is more often caused not so much by stupidity as by ignorance particularly ignorance about ourselves avoidable human misery caused by not knowing ourselves so as we undertake this practice to remember, to recognize, to be present, to, to recognize that this is a living process, this moment has never been lived before, we are a continually unfolding or evolving process, never the same for two minutes in a row. And what we discover when we, when we try to take a look at what's actually happening, to actually contact what's happening, what we discover is that it's very difficult. As obvious as our body and mind is, we discover that we're mostly lost in thoughts, lost in thoughts of the past, fantasy, other times, other places, futures, commenting, narrating, fixing, figuring out, analyzing, explaining, Rehearsing and occasionally actually aware of and in touch with the arising moment of body and mind as it occurs. So this is the first insight that we all have gained, is that we think a lot. (laughs) It sounds so trite, so obvious, And yet it's actually, when we see it, when we grok it, when we really get a glimpse of how much we are on automatic pilot and lost in thought, only then can we do anything about it. Because with repeated practice, trying to remember to recognize the present moment, as we've done this week, you can see in the course of six days that the momentum of present-moment awareness really increases, even in six days. Now, just extrapolate that for the rest of your life, into the rest of your life. And if if we practice with that sincerity, and that integrity, and that support, supportive conditions, we've learned something. we see when we, as we come to understand the, the times that we're lost in thought, is that's where the suffering takes place. You know, we're lost in thoughts of anxiety and frustration and disappointment and unfulfilled desires and hopes and wishes. And it goes on just over the periphery, or just over the horizon, on the periphery of our full awareness. It's kind of, we kind of know it's there but only when we turn to look at it and really see, well, what's what's this all about? Do we see just how thin, how flimsy, how insubstantial these thoughts are? But when we don't look at them, they assume gigantic proportions in our hearts, in our minds. And so the challenge for all of us is to... uh, dare to have the courage to look at our fear our anxiety our unfulfilled desires our regrets our remorse despair whatever whatever it is and we all have some of some of all of those and to look at them and just to to recognize them as a present moment experience that arises for a moment is seen and passes away. If we don't see that they arise and pass away, we assume that that's the way it is forever. That's the way it always is. We're always stuck with that same judgment of ourselves or others or of the future, of the past. Mm -hmm. Anxious, fretful, fearful, regretful. And in fact, each of these states of mind only arise for a moment. And if they're seen, we see through them. And we're not entangled in them. We see them as something that has arisen, not something that we are. I remember reading uh, an account of a botanist who traveled across North America, back in the 1800s, and he lamented the fact that he had to ride a horse because he was moving so fast he couldn't he couldn't stop to see and study what he was seeing. He didn't get a good look. And our life is like that, you know. If if we're just living our life at the pace 21st century pace. And we're just kind of moving through events for a single glimpse of every moment. We don't see very much. All we see is kind of a shadow of ourselves, a silhouette, a kind of a, a, a unidimensional, a one-dimensional, not even a being, just a cutout, a paste, a paste-up or something. And so, to to really become intimate with our our lives, really takes much more observation, a steadier observation, spending a little more time with each moment. And I don't mean more time, I just mean being there for each moment. As Georgia O'Keeffe acknowledges, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. This practice is one of befriending ourselves, Spending the time with ourselves to really come to know and come to appreciate, come to acknowledge, come to accept all that we are. And when we do, we can be sure that the view of ourself that we gain is going to be far different than the movie that plays out on the screen, the darkened screen of our assumptions and delusions. We're going to see a very different dynamic at play. When we take and slow the movie down, the movie of our life, and we start to see life as the still frames photos that occur in moment, moment by moment, then we just gather a lot more knowledge. We see a lot more, we understand a lot more. Through seeing a lot more, we understand much more of how it is, how things come to be, how it is we are the way we are. To do this requires a persevering uh, willingness to observe, to look at, to contact, to look at the most ordinary and mundane experiences. Because as I've acknowledged many times in the retreat, most of our life is very familiar, ordinary, mundane, recurring, daily, many times a day, experience. And until we look at them to see... What is what's what's beneath them, what's behind them, what's going on here? We're not gonna know. And this kind of learning by observation is not has not been a universal way of acquiring knowledge. In fact, it was Louis Agassiz back in the eighteen hundreds who was a Swiss naturalist who gained his fame and renown by studying Glaciers, you know, those fast-moving ice flows up in the mountain. <laughs> so he's Swiss, and he studied these glaciers, and he, just by observing, just by watching, just by observing, just by observing long enough that he could understand, that he could gain intuitive insight. And his, his way of teaching was to encourage students to study nature, not books, And this is precisely what we're doing here. We are learning to study the nature of the mind, the nature of mental activity, the nature of the body. We can read in a book what others have observed, what others have gained, what others have intuited, but that's knowledge. When we observe for ourselves, we gain wisdom. So Louis Agassiz came on a speaking tour across America back in the eighteen hundreds, speaking about glaciers, and in fact he was wildly popular. And everywhere he went, through all these little hobong towns and spread across America, North America, when he spoke, people were so enthused that they started Agassiz clubs everywhere he went. Of course, Harvard University heard about him, invited him to teach there. He accepted, he came. Graduate students wanted him for their advisor or mentor. And so it was quite a competitive um, process to get him to agree to be your mentor. And so, Samuel Scudder was one of those uh, students who wished to be mentored by Agassiz, and he was called for the interview, the private interview, with Agassiz in his office. And When asked by Mr. Agassiz when he would like to begin, the correct answer was, and he offered it now. Whereupon, Mr. Agassiz went to one of the shelves in his office and he picked up a jar of uh, pickled fish and he pulled out a fish out of the formaldehyde and whatever else it was stored in, laid it on a plate or a tray and said, Look at the fish. And then he left the room. So Samuel Scott wrote this of his experience, describing it as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He said, In ten minutes, I had seen all that I could see in that fish. Half an hour passed. An hour. Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, Above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. (laughs) It seemed the most limited field of study. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. And he writes, I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, (laughs) 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 Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz exclaimed, obviously it pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. Now, I don't need to tell you where the fish is. (laughs) And the injunction and the instruction is to look, to observe. Again, repeatedly and repeatedly. And you can see what Scudder felt. You know, in 10 minutes he'd seen the fish, he'd seen everything about it. But he didn't understand it. He didn't see, he could see the two sides, he could see everything. But there was no understanding in the mind. There was no insight. There was no knowledge kind of emerged from the observation. And so we look again and again and again and again. Not for anything in particular, not to figure it out. I mean, what are you going to figure out? But the intuitive understanding of, oh, this is the way it is, arrives long after we've seen everything that's to be seen. This is what we're doing in practice. We're looking again and again at Sensations in the body, thoughts in the mind, habits, visitors to the mind, we're looking again and again and again, because we don't understand them. We haven't seen them, we haven't seen them deeply. We don't understand how they work, why they work that way. And so we observe, boredom is not the path of practice. So it's perseverance, it's just this incessant, just look again, look again, look again. decades ago, I was—I had a friend who was cooking for an archaeological dig up in central Maine behind Katahdin, which is the northernmost point of the Appalachian Trail. And that area of Maine is just solid forest. No one lives there. There's a few logging roads and a few camps on lakes where people fish or hunt or something, but no one lives there. And there was an archaeological dig there. And it was on the pond, uh, the, the shore of one of these innumerable ponds that dot the countryside out there. And it was just a little pond. And the archaeologists had set up their digs. And the way they do that, they, they, they mark out the locations they want to dig. It's about a four-foot square, mm-hmm. and it's kind of protected. And then they start excavating the soil. And they work their way down through the forest, debris, to ground where, <coughs> excuse me, where the the latest forest debris is no longer there, and then they start scraping off the soil a millimeter at a time, a millimeter at a time with a little trowel, and whenever they come to anything that is distinctive, you know, a chip, a piece of bone, a char, a piece of charred wood, anything to indicate any activity and what activity took place on that. Then they plot out where it is, how deep it is in the hole, where it is, pick it up, put it in a plastic bag, label it. Later they'll look at everything in all the plastic bags when they get back to the university in the winter. And so they were doing this for months, a couple of months during the summertime. And there's a whole team of people up there, 20, 15 or 20 people digging, uh, just scraping away way down to the, uh, the soil to get to, as far as they could, bedrock, if, if possible. During the winter, when the pond froze over uh, with ice, and you could walk out in the middle of the pond, the, they drilled down through the ice and down through the bottom of the pond, through all the muck, to take a core sample of the muck at the bottom of the pond, so that they had a record of the pollen that had fallen on the pond over the last ten to 12,000 years so they knew what kind of plants were growing around the edge of the pond. So then, with this information, all the chips and all of this, and pieces of bone and charred wood and the pollen samples, and what else they knew about the history of this place, they determined that around this pond were the campsites of the Clovis people who were the antecedents to the uh, what we call First Nations or, or Native uh, Americans, and that they were there somewhere between ten and 12,000 years before the dig. And that was the very time that the last glacier was receding from Maine. The glacier in central Maine was a mile thick, you know, 15,000 years ago, but it 10,000 years ago, or 12,000 years ago, is receding, and the last of the big mammals, the mastodons and saber-toothed tigers and things like that, were following the receding edge of the glacier. These Clovis people were hunting them. And what they discovered at this particular place, when the ice left the ground, was a quarry, or stone, which was easily made into arrowheads, spearheads, knives. It was chert that was able to be chipped to a very sharp edge. That chert has been found distributed all over the United States because it was harvested there and traded from tribe to tribe all across the country because it was so useful for Native Americans. And the archaeologist perfected the way of chipping this stone just to prove that it could be done using bone, using bone to pry in a certain way to make a very sharp edge. So, from uh, observing all of these, well, pixels of information, a charred bone, I mean a charred uh, bone, uh, a piece of churret, a a half-formed arrowhead, uh, the pollen at the bottom of the pond, and, and By looking at and observing and and trying to understand how did this come to be, they were able to piece together the story of humanity at that time, at that place. What we do with our practice is similar. We observe what is going on in this body, in this mind, and it seems like pixels of insignificant forest (coughs) debris. You know, a thought, a memory, a plan, a, you know, a desire, an image, a dream, a this, a that, sensations, you know, and individually any one of them or any dozen of them are insignificant. But as we look at them, as we observe them unfolding, time after time, time, just over and over and over again, we begin to understand their nature. We begin to understand how they came to be. We begin to, to uh, disassemble our personal history, if you will. We come to see the layers of conditioning that have given rise to disappearance. And we understand, we see the family history, we see the social uh, conditioning, we see the political and economic uh, conditioning effect upon us. And, and it's all revealed in <clears throat> memories, beliefs, assumptions, all kinds of well knowledge which is not immediately available. Looking at the surface, and so just because we're paying attention to this moment's experience, which is what mindfulness is, you don't see. You don't. You don't see all the connections, but the conditioning of our personal life. Will come into view with this personal history review. Sam Keane, another, what would you call him, psychonaut, <laughs> one who explores the psyche, he says to break the spell of my personality, I must recover my personal history. I must demythologize the private, family, and public myths that have informed me. I must be willing to become disillusioned with my images of myself. To know myself, I must begin to discriminate between my raw experience and the myths I explain myself by. This is what we do with, with mindful awareness. We come out of the story of our life. We know the personal story. Anytime we're, we're asked about ourselves, we've got a story that we just lay out It is heavily redacted and edited. (laughs) Practice sees what's missing. Not only sees it, but understands its significance in the unfolding of this process. And so this whole, the whole layers of the mind of cultural conditioning, class conditioning, educational conditioning, social, economic, and our religious conditioning of our parents comes into view. Only then do we see how entrapped and how conditioned and how we have become uh, like an automaton. We're living out these beliefs and assumptions that our parents, doing best they could, offered us. Now, let's face it. Every child has to be conditioned into a family, a culture, a society. No one can escape that and live without it. And so, everyone comes and learns this, gets this conditioning. Whatever culture, whatever family, whatever class, whatever religion, whatever economic society, whatever weather pattern you live in, it deeply conditions the way you understand yourself. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten how deeply conditioned we are by that. Because it seems like who we are or not otherwise. Now, how do we access and what do we do with this information? And I ask because, you know, when you look at what's going on in the Middle East, now here we have these warring cultures, large tribes, uh, ethnic groups, religious groups, fighting each other for centuries. You know, your great 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 grand uncle chopped down my great 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 grand aunt's olive tree, different I'm going to uh, you. <coughs> now where what is going to decondition that tribal allegiance, identity And beliefs. This is, these beliefs and assumptions of the way those people are is buried. It's not on the, it's not a belief that you can just go, hey, change your mind. They're nice. It doesn't work. You can see it in yourself. How difficult it is to get down in there to uncover, recover the original experience that informed this myth about these people this religion that people and until the clarity of deconditioning our personal history is revealed we will be enslaved enslaved to the conditioning of our parents so too those in the Middle East so too those who live in the Orkney Islands in Northern Scotland which is paradise on earth next to Hawaii and because it's like moderate climate excellent soil for growing everything in the flow of the Atlantic Ocean so there's abundant fish it's warm they grow citrus there people have lived there and farmed there in harmony for hundreds and hundreds of years nobody ever moves away from there it's ideal they have a happy uh, agrarian Society—that's their conditioning. That's the way they live, and they're not about to change either. So, exploring these opaque layers of accumulated condition conditioning takes a persevering, patient observation. So, we we we, we guide you to be pers- having the persevering energy to be patient with the recurrent torments of the mind, and to just observe, familiar, over and over again. Again, Don Juan, speaking to Carlos Castaneda, both great spiritual teachers of the last century, Don Juan said, You see, he went on, we only have two alternatives. We either take everything for granted, or we don't. If we follow the first we end up bored to death with ourselves and with everybody else. If we follow the second and erase personal history, we create a mist around us that's very exciting and mysterious state in which nobody knows what the limits are possible. When we erase personal history, not to deny it, but to just not be caught by it, The potential of a full human being is accessible, not just what we've been conditioned to believe, understand, assume, but the fullness of human life. But those archaeologists, you know, they're digging up in Maine, and they get down as far as they can, and they hit bedrock, and there's no more scraping with a little trowel. Their search stops, so too as we work down through the layers of our mind, through the cultural, uh, personal, family conditioning, we reach a bedrock. We reach this place within our conditioning where we come upon what we didn't learn but is inherent in our very being. And we come upon the conditioning of our sex, our gender, our ethnicity, our species, In our age. We've never lived without them. We have no idea what it would be like. And yet, it's a fact. And we can glimpse just how conditioned we are by these facts of our life, these experiences of our being. So, as we work down through... And we start paying attention, and we start to access this information. You can see that your idea about yourself, the assumptions you have about yourself—that you're human, that you're male, that you're hetero, or you're whatever you are—they get questioned. You 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 see through the conditioning of all of these conditions. Now, how do we? What, what do we experience? You know, it's not it's not easy to talk about what the experience is when you see through these layers of conditioning because it looks like bedrock. You know, it's just like solid, doesn't change. This is the way it is. Well, bedrock looks that way too. But you know, bedrock is really just these shifting tectonic plates on the surface of the earth. And while they look solid from any one position, (coughs) these floating, massive bedrock islands are floating around on the surface of the earth, and for the most part, they're stable, but in time, of course, they collide with each other, giving rise to, well, the Himalayan mountains, (laughs) the Rocky Mountains, a pretty dramatic changes in the surface appearance of the earth. When we confront, when we come to access the tectonic plates of our being, gender, species, etc., we can expect equally dramatic changes on the surface of our being, how we understand this being. Now... (coughs) Hawaii presents this little interesting archaeological, not archaeological, uh, geological anomaly on the face of the earth. And, you know, the Hawaiian islands are this string of islands from the northwest to the southeast. And the oldest islands are in the northwest, and there's a new island being formed in the southeast. And it's because at that spot, on the surface of the earth, there's a hole. There's a hole, and the molten magma from the center of the earth comes to the surface there, through the bedrock. But the bedrock keeps moving over this hot spot, so that, you know, five gazillion million years ago, it was here. And then the surface of the earth moved a little bit, And the flow of magma kept happening and created another island. And the tectonic plate moved again and again and again, creating a string of islands, the oldest one in the northwest, the youngest one in the southeast. So while all these islands are made of the same stuff, they all look and are very different. We're like that. We have all been formed... You know, the, the inherentness of us, whatever that is, has been formed from this, well, molten possibilities of the mind. We've all we've all had the opportunities to resort to anger, irritation, frustration, disappointment, or generosity, loving, kindness, compassion, understanding. And we've all had the same opportunities for lifetimes. And while they are flowing and we're in the the life of the moment, and they come to the surface, we have made choices. We've made choices. And those choices have resulted in what in Buddhist psychology is called mental (coughs) legacies. The default setting, if you will, of all of these mental possibilities. So, when you see a newborn one or two days out of the womb and they're displaying themselves as they are, even within a few days you can clearly see traits of their mind. Now, they don't have a personality yet, they haven't learned much from mom, dad, and the environment, but already they're different, even if they're twins. Where'd that come from? They didn't learn it they didn't learn it out of the womb, they didn't learn it in the womb. It kind of came with the package. So there's this mental legacy that we're all born with, and we each have a very different mental legacy. And the mental legacy is composed of different mm, elements. There's the wholesome mental legacy of the paramase, for example. You know, we all have a baseline of, a baseline mm, default setting, you might call it, of... Tendency towards being generous, being loving, being understanding, being patient, <coughs> being truthful. You know, and that's kind of our baseline. Rare that we go below it, but the possibility of increasing it is there. We also all have a baseline of the torments of the mind. Tendency towards, our default setting, tendency towards aversion, fear, depression, desire. Judgment, self-judgment, pride, shame. We all have that too. And there are other parameters of uh, observation visible through mindfulness of our, what would you call, default setting of our, of our mind. It's not our personality. It's way below our personality. Our personality is built upon these mental legacies. And yet, these default settings exert a tremendous influence on the choices we make in life. Did you ever consider, how is it that you ended up in the profession you did? It wasn't just because you were thinking that way. There was deep-rooted tendencies in the mind already there that we built upon that were built upon by choices we made in the past and currently continue to make in, now in the present. As we come into contact with these you know, kind of the baseline default settings in the mind, they feel to be pretty solid. Pretty, they feel to be inherent. They feel to be un unlearned, but a given. And each one of us feels it and we're all different. If you don't know what your baseline uh, mental legacies are, your default setting in all of these skillful, unskillful, in other areas of life, ask your partner. They know. <laughs> it's hard to see ourselves. It's really hard to acknowledge our own limitations, our own set points, if you will. Some we know. Some we're happy to know. Some we're, we're pretty shame- ashamed to know. So it's important that we, you know, and as I mentioned the other night, mindfulness, a moment of mindfulness is always accompanied by this no-spin factor called Uchukata. It just doesn't, it doesn't deceive you. It, it, It will not allow you to deceive yourself. It will see things as they are. As shameful and as humiliating as it might be, you can't pretend otherwise. It takes courage. It takes courage. And yet, mindfulness doesn't shrink, doesn't shrink, doesn't doesn't kind of withdraw from that, because it's not personality-based. Mindfulness is a functional tool of the mind. It's not your personality. If your personality was guiding your mindfulness, we'd we'd say they're stuck here forever. Luckily, personality doesn't touch the functioning of mindfulness. If you, if you, pray if you train your mind. So these mental legacies, while they are like the Hawaiian Islands, all made of the same stuff. Decisions. In you know, a mental legacies case. Decisions of how to respond to the situations of life's lives and in life. So we have this crack in the cosmic egg in Hawaii. And we have this crack in the cosmic egg when we practice. We can crack open the mind to to see where this is all coming from, where the assumptions about our life, where the beliefs about our gender, ethnicity, age, species, where that all comes from. And until we do, until we open that part of the mind, we will be blindly conditioned by assumptions and beliefs that we don't know we have. Now, I mentioned the other night why it's important to pay attention to the wandering mind, or to recognize the wandering mind and not to indulge in it to, to, to stay present with the mind. Because as we as the mind wanders without awareness, noticing it, it reaffirms all of these all of this conditioning, all of these assumptions, all of these beliefs that we don't know we have. And only by arresting the indulgence in reaffirming them are we able to access them. And that's through mindfulness. Stopping the spin, stopping the flow, and just coming back to here, now deeper. As, as Buddha talks about it, he says, we live under multiple layers of delusion. And as we practice mindfulness, there are multiple layers of wisdom exposed. And wisdom is all of this conditioning. <coughs> so, since we're all made of the same material, just like all Hawaiian are made of the same material. What is this material? In the Hawaiian, it's all stardust. Everything in the universe is just stardust. From exploding stars, everything that we, everything that we see, everything that we are, every solid macro-looking thing, is just stardust in some very elaborate, you know, configuration. So too, we, all beings, all beings, human, animal, and otherwise, all made of the same stuff. Minds are alike. Different potential, different appearance, different decisions. Yeah, there's variety, but we're all made of the same stuff. When we know that about ourselves, not because we believe it, but because we've seen it, and we know this about others, what is there to fear? how can't we have compassion for everyone? No matter how abhorrent, how different, how whatever whatever we might think about it, we know they're no different than us, or we're no different than them. A few different decisions, yeah. A few different appearances, yeah. Different conditions growing up, yeah. And underneath it all, same. Same stuff. Same choices. Same possibilities. Same fear, same shame. As Carl Sagan acknowledges, the cosmos, everything in the cosmos, is within us. We are all made of star stuff. Now, there's this uh, Tibetan wandering ascetic hermit monk. I can't remember when he lived but he's quite well known in in Tibet, and that's where, his name is Shepkar. And he was just a wandering ascetic monk. And he said something, he said a lot of things that were really profound, but one thing I want to share with you that is really worth thinking about. first, let me just, let me just ask you to reflect for a moment on all the sorrow that you've experienced in this lifetime. Sadness, the loss, the disappointment, the frustration, the grief. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of sorrow in every one of us. You now, we forget it, but we can recall it, and it's painful. It is really, really painful. And we've also experienced a tremendous amount of happiness. All the joy, all the pleasure, all the happiness, all the ecstasy. I mean, it's just phenomenal how much pleasure we have experienced as human beings, isn't it? It's just amazing, every day. (coughs) So he says, no matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, isn't it amazing that this mind that knows has never been impaired nor improved in the slightest? It just knows. This mind just knows. Whatever's whatever's going on, whether it's happiness or sorrow. It isn't affected by what it knows. It still works. It still is there. It's still here for the next moment, the next moment, the next moment, the next moment. And it's not getting better at what it does, and it's not being damaged by what it did. Why are we afraid? Why are we so attached to our limited identity? Why do we have this small idea of ourselves that is so easily threatened by others, or difference, or aging, or anything? We've experienced it all already. And it hasn't affected the mind at all, it hasn't been changed. Isn't that amazing? It is to me. <laughs> so here we have this dancing energy of the cosmos within us. We are it. You know, ever changing. Just like everyone else in the room, everyone else in the world, everyone else that's ever lived. Not only humans, other beings. Not that different. We have a mind. It's ever-changing. We're all ever-changing. Again, Carl Sagan. he says, in all of our searching for happiness, the only thing we've found that makes the emptiness, the changeability, bearable is each other. The only thing that makes this whole journey bearable is each other and as Trungpa Rinpoche encourages us. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. (laughs) Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified, sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. Let's let the words quiet down for a while. We shall not cease from exploration. In the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.